Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So, Harriet, here we are again. It's episode 48. Fantastic. Back with episode 48, Greg. Back with episode 48. And it's, it's, good, it's good to see you after your inability to attend the last one. That's, but it's great to see you back in the, um, in the working mode. So, we have a guest today, don't we? But we do. We're very lucky to have Todd Buell with us today. Yeah, so let me just explain who Todd is. Todd is the Brussels correspondent for Law 360, which is a US-based legal news service, um, which publishes for professionals. And he writes about tax, which I think is the right guy for us, right? That's definitely who we should be talking to. Absolutely, and, and, and quite possibly not the right guy for a lot of people, but for us, an absolutely perfect fit. Yeah, not good for a football show. Right. But for, for a tax show, that's the right guy. Previous in his previous life, he wrote for the Wall Street Journal. He's a proper journal. Wow. Yeah. Which I'm particularly happy about. And um, a, a small news outlet called Market News International, which I am sad to say I have never heard of before about five minutes ago. Um, but I'm sure I will be seeking them out, knowing that Todd is one of their alumni alumni. Right. So today we're going to talk about a number of proposals and sort of have a news update as to where we are with them um because there are some big changes coming in the european union uh environment aren't there um uh, yes we've 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 got a lot coming up and i mean it is a super interesting time to be involved in international tax because all we seem to get really is development upon development it's it's almost becoming as exciting as um UK-based tax, which is constantly changing. But yes, the EU are, are doing some ambitious, pushing forward some ambitious projects at the moment. So shall we, we've got a list, right? Oh, hello, Todd. Anyway, would you like to... <laughs> Hi, Graham. Hi, Harriet. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank, thank you very uh, much. Thank you. Yeah, you, you, you're you going to make us look good. That's what that's what you're here for. So... Because um, we can't do it ourselves. We're not very good at that ourselves. So shall we, <laughs> shall we kick off with our first um project which from my list is the befit how is that pronounced befit 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 which is the business in europe framework for income taxation um which sounds very interesting let me just read out a quote that i've got here from the um the call for evidence uh on, on the consultation was the the commission announced that befit would be a single corporate tax rulebook for the EU based on the key factors, fact, features of a common tax base and the allocation of profits between member states by using a formula. That's a radical change, right? Mm-hmm. I uh, mean, it, it is. Sorry. No, go on. Yes, it is, but it's a, something that the EU has tried to do before. It's. I think this BFIT proposal is at least somewhat seen as the successor or is seen really as the successor to the uh, common consolidated corporate tax base, 
right, that the EU tried to introduce um, in the previous decade a couple of times, though it never got anywhere, uh, mainly because member states didn't approve it uh, of it. Uh, and this, and I think this is going to be perhaps one of the challenges with the BFIT proposal uh, that we expect to see coming out in September uh, will be how will member states uh, react to it? Uh, my understanding is that there's supposed to be a, a discussion of this in the Council of Member States in October. But what's important, and your listeners might know this already, but it's worth re-emphasizing, is that tax law in the EU uh, runs on the unanimity principle, right? So all 27 member countries have to agree or at least not object for uh, these proposals uh, to become to become law. And I I think um, it's fair to say that there's some doubt as to whether the member states would approve BFIT, though, of course, I mean, one, one shouldn't be too skeptical before the proposal is released. And I know that uh, the, the, the commission, I, I believe, um, or I've heard it argued that things are maybe different now than a few years ago, that now we've had at least in principle agreement, and the in principle is very important here on pillar one and pillar two. And the I think the, the redistribution or the, the formula part that you were talking about, Graham, you know, is 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 an essential part of pillar one, and financial accounting is an important part of pillar two. And so I think there is you know, advocates of BFIT might say, well, look, member states have already embraced these principles in this OECD process, so it's not as big a step to endorse them in BFIT, maybe as what, what was the case a few years earlier with the with, with CCCTB. We'll see, though. Uh, it, it's, um, it's very much uh, uncertain at this point where things will go with that proposal but it's expected at this point, at least in, in September. So Harriet, this formulary apportionment approach, which is essentially, I think there's a Missouri, Missouri uh, formula. Uh, uh, basically you divide up the profits between the countries in which certain activities occur. So there'll be a payroll element, there'll be a sales element and you work out what, you plug the figures into the formula and it spits out who gets what taxing right. That's something that the OECD looks at in its guidance to the model treaty, right? And rejects. Yes. And I look, I think there are huge issues around um, having a unified tax approach, as, as we've discussed before and as far more erudite people than I have pointed out in a variety of different places. There are, are there are just very significant issues with having a single approach for uh, a number of different jurisdictions. So if we look at this, look, look at the euro, the euro has always been problematic because if, if it's because where you have countries with a strong economic position and those with a weaker economic position the ones with a weaker economic position are badly disadvantaged by sharing an economy uh, sorry sharing a currency with the stronger economic 
um, jurisdictions. And you get a similar issue here, which is just that all of the countries within the EU are very different and have very different needs. And so having a, a unified approach is not necessarily helpful. And I suspect that is to some extent why it's been rejected in by the OECD. Um, do you think, Todd, that um, Britain's absence around the table at this point is making this more or less likely? Oh, boy. Uh, Get a Brexit I, I, I mean... <laughs> It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, I think, like as I was saying, it, it only takes one member state to block it, and I mean, I've heard um, concern. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of early to say, but I, I, I mean, I know that, for example, on like the digital digital tax or on the you know redistribution of 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 revenue that that it's likely that i would think smaller countries would be skeptical of this right because they would be worried that there there would be revenue that would go from them for, for, from their treasuries to bigger countries um i mean honestly i mean i i i, I don't know really what difference it makes if you know britain's there or not um i mean it's 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 i think, I think 20... the point I, I think the point i'm driving at is that it, it, it britain's position would be to to be against this i think traditionally wouldn't it harriet um i i think so i think uh, probably so, i mean we're guessing really aren't we but it, it, but it goes against the keeping the eu as a, as a sort of like a restricted to than a... yeah exactly rather than sort of so, a, a super state the, the... I was trying to avoid that word, <laughs> um, but you see the um, so you see the pressure that Hungary came under about pillar two. Yes, that's much harder for Hungary to resist on its own than to be standing next to Britain. You know, there's, there's yeah, I can I see your point there. The big but, players yeah, yeah. are saying no, this is not the way we want to go. It's that yeah. veto, even though all vetoes are equal, the veto of a France, a Germany, or a Britain is much, carries much more weight than Denmark. Yeah. No offense to Denmark, but like you, you get one. I mean, and I, I think again, this is one of the things that I see as being an issue. Todd, as you've pointed out, you've got the smaller states that are going to be concerned about a tax take going from them to somewhere else. They are, in all political likelihood, going to be less likely to be able to maintain a veto. Political pressure is likely to be more, um, more effectively applied on them to prevent them vetoing but also in terms of the design of the system they're probably going to have less input or be less able to put the brakes on any particular feature that they they dislike and I I do find that worrying it's one of the things that I find worrying about sometimes how OECD business is done uh, and um, yeah I think we have exactly the same issue here but in a in, in a block that has recently had what turned out to be a fairly acrimonious divorce from one member. So let's see. Yeah. So as an example of, of to give a live example, not a live example, but give give a practical example of what we're talking about, that does talk about com a combined tax residence test, right? Um, for, for corporates. Now, if Gibraltar was still a uh, an EU territory, then we have a very specific 
fact pattern with the fact that we're tiny and we have a big neighbour and people are mobile across the border. So our tax residence test for, for corporates um, has a second limb that says not only if you're managed in Gibraltar, but if you are a Gibraltar resident and you manage it somewhere else, then it will also be tax resident in Gibraltar. And that's just specifically designed to stop people going for coffee in La Linea, having a coffee, having a board meeting, then walking back and saying, ha it's not resident in Gibraltar, right? So that sort of national difference driven by fact patterns will be eliminated. Um, that's there for a good reason. It's not there to help people. In fact, it's an anti-avoidance mechanism. But I think that, that that's one of the problems that I have is that those sort of unique national mm -hmm solutions that are driven by the fact pattern of Denmark or Sweden or whatever will be eliminated um yeah and I mean we've and again I can't remember where we raised this before Graham but we've talked before haven't we about how very small jurisdictions tend to it's not just a case of scaling down they tend to just have much less infrastructure and much less infrastructure needs so one of the reasons that these small jurisdictions originally charge less tax than the larger jurisdictions was because they didn't need to bring as much tax in even even scaled down yeah. so we don't yeah. have an army or a, or a series of nuclear power stations to pay for or whatever so we don't need capital gains tax i mean but but graham i mean that is a, a fair point that you raise i mean and it's not just small countries that maybe would have a problem with a redistribution of rights if you have to agree to a common base or something that's sort of akin to a common base then yeah. what are we talking about here r d credits patent boxes potentially could be in danger again we have not seen the actual proposal but but yeah. any sort of i don't know nuance in in a national tax program could be uh you know could be could be in, in danger. Um, I mean, and there's also been this, this whole other element that, 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 you know, I've written about, about how they want to kind of, and I'm, and, and before I get into this in much more detail, I, I'm not sure if this is exactly going to be part of BFIT or something similar, but they want to, there's been some talk of trying to bring OECD transfer pricing rules sort of more uniformly into EU law and, and a way that would prevent uh, situations like what you had in the ECJ fiat case where the court basically said that, um, that you need to have, you know, need to look at the sort of the national interpretation of arm's length principle and things like that's getting a little bit above my pay grade there. But I mean, the, the basic outline, you know, I know that that's part of it. That's an issue that um, is being discussed in the context of BFIT. There's also supposed to be a part to help small businesses um, that, uh, that, that EU Commission, uh, that, that the Commission has talked about a little bit ahead of time. So it, it's going to be a massive piece of legislation, I think. And you wonder maybe perhaps it could succeed if you know, countries see like this part they like and they're willing to tolerate that, you know, they're willing to, to, to tolerate a part they don't like for the part they do like. It, it, I, I imagine there's going to be some sort of, there's going to have to be some sort of, I don't know, bargaining or I don't know, to compromise for it to work at all would be would be what I would think. From the little I know about in uh, the, the shenanigans in EU politics at that level, 
feels like the Visegrad group will be pushing against and, and look, be looking for some rebalancing in the favour of the Eastern European members. Um, but again, yeah, you're right, we haven't seen it, so... Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we don't know. And I think, again, this is something where my concerns tend to be perhaps more ideological than practical, um, though perhaps no, nonetheless real for that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, the, the, the big problem for the rest of the world, and I know we're going to talk about EU overreach in a, mo in, in, in a bit, the big problem for the rest of the world is when the EU starts to measure other people's tax bases against its own, and accuses them of being abusive because they deviate from the EU, um, which is something that the EU has a little bit of um, history with. Um, I can't I think, think of a single case where that's happened. That's um, that's sort of, they have a habit of doing it. So this is the worry that you know if you've got what what they they seem to think that um, that there is a normal tax base, and if you deviate from that tax base, you have somehow let you've moved it's not that they've added to their tax base and you've got left behind then and then they say well why why do you not have i keep saying capital gains tax why do you not have capital gains tax well because we never had capital gains tax ah but we have capital gains tax so you must have it otherwise you are encouraging avoidance of our tax i'm not sure how that um how that computes for me uh historical context but there, but there you go um Okay. Graham, do you th do you think you need some therapy with your capital gains tax obsession? I think has, I think that might has be. capital gains tax done something bad to you in the past? Well, I, I had to pay it uh, when I sold my business. So yes, um, it, it, it's a it's a cap it's a capital pain tax in yeah, your case, right? Exactly. No, but, <laughs> but it's just it's a it's a live example because I mean Jersey hasn't got capital gains tax. We haven't got capital gains tax. It's just it's a it's quite a it's quite a novel tax in the fact it's it's only fifty years old, right? So, you know that's that's why I use it as an example. Anyway, um, so do we think we've covered the ground with Befit? We we don't know what it looks like, and we know there's going to be a big fight. Yeah, I think that's right in a nutshell. Yeah, um, but but we can probably get a, have a guess at what it looks like based on the previous proposals. So the next area that we've got on our list is um, DST Pillar 1. Ooh, no, no. A super exciting um, topic. So we had, didn't we, um, a few years ago, a proposal for a digital services tax. Um, I think, was it, was it a unified DST or was it each of the member states were going to introduce their own? My memory is that initially it was supposed to be unified. And then as that became, well, from day one, I think literally it was clear that, that I think it was, you know, Ireland or the, you know, uh, Luxembourg, Ireland and Malta were definitely not going to. Yeah, countries that, you know, that, that, that also that have headquarters of European tech companies were saying, you know, no way. Uh, and so member states began to implement these on their own for uh, France being the most prominent. And then uh, the United States under President Trump was furious about this and threatened trade sanctions. And then it kind of calmed down 
as digital taxes sort of became, I don't know, subsumed or included in this OECD pillar one process, right? So where we stand today is that literally as I am speaking, and probably at the time this is actually um, disseminated, I was about to say published, but I guess you don't publish a release. podcast when you release, thank you. Um, we will know drop. more. That's the, that's the technical phrase. We're going to drop it. Right. Yes. You, you drop it for for people to, to, to listen. And by that point, we should know a little bit more about uh, what uh, the OECD inclusive framework meeting that's happening in Paris, literally as we speak. At some point, we are supposed to get this so-called multilateral convention that is essentially a treaty that is supposed to lead to the, over time, lead to the implementation of Pillar 1, which is supposed to be the international solution for digital taxes. It's supposed to, you know, make digital taxes go away just so just to just to recap what pillar one is pillar one yes pillar one is a is a provision which will only be applicable to companies with a turnover of more than 20 billion i can never remember euros and dollars and harriet and i have this conversation every time we mention it Um, i think it's euros i think it's euros Euros at this stage 20 20 billion euros so there's very few companies in the world that meet that criteria but uh, there are some and they're pretty much all digital based uh companies aren't they um, so anybody with a turnover of more than 20 billion, an, an element of the excess profits that they make will be allocated for taxing rights to um, the states in which they source their income. So it's a way to get around the problem that's created by the definition of permanent establishment, because you can't, a, a company that has a website that sells things to people in Belgium, it doesn't have a bricks and mortar presence and doesn't have an agent, doesn't have a taxable presence in terms of the standard OECD model of international taxation. So it's a way to allocate that. Now, we can probably talk about whether it's that's better or worse than a domestic top, a domestic um, digital services tax in each country. It's undoubtedly worse from the perspective of... Um, a company that turns over more than 20 billion euros because they'll have to file a tax return in every country in the world. They don't want to do that. Um, but it's probably better, my understanding, that Belgium taxes all of the income that's generated in Belgium than it just gets a top slice of an element of, I think it's, uh, is it is it everything over 15% profit margin gets allocated to the... Um, they get sorry. I'm going to say that again. It may be ten percent. Yeah, sorry, that's it. The example is fifteen percent. You get they, they get twenty. They get taxing rights on twenty percent of everything over ten percent. Mm-hmm. That's correct, isn't it? So if they get fifteen percent, if they're making fifteen percent, they get the 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 source country gets taxing rights on one percent of that of that profit. So, um, that's not. That's not what they would tax if they were taxing in their own right. That's that's a much less of a take than it would be if they were have their own domestic rate. 
Um, so I think that there's quite a big give by the rest of the world to the Americans. Because it is the Americans that are against this, aren't they? What would you say, Harriet? Um, I think it is, as with many, the sort of there's the OECD international tax community, then there's the US, isn't there? And, and there's not necessarily, while they do similar things, they like to do them in their own ways. Uh, and I think this is a prime example of that. <laughs> and and the, I mean, yes. I mean, when you look to, I mean, I probably your listeners know this, but just in a you know, review, you had pillar one, which you've described, and pillar two was accompanied that, the 15% minimum effective tax for uh, large uh, groups above 750 million, so a wider scope of companies than pillar one. But what was fascinating to watch last year was you had this, you know, sense of, okay, the U.S. Has signed this. The U.S. already had a minimum tax and guilty that was kind of an inspiration for the for the minimum tax project, you could say. And then one could argue because the European Union was so slow in implementing Pillar Two, the United States, you know, in its very arcane legislative process, decided, okay, we're going to create a minimum tax, and it will be our own minimum tax. It's in fact very different from the OECD one. And you're seeing this US OECD divergence also to some extent, I think on pillar one, that the US treasury signed the OECD deal or the the, the two pillar in principle project in October of 2021. But at least the sort of received wisdom is that this requires a treaty change or you know a treaty ratification process in the United States for the US to agree to pillar 1 and that requires a two-thirds majority in the Senate and it's very hard to get two-thirds of the Senate to agree on anything so this is going to going to be quite a challenge to be implemented in the US now the the sort of the counter argument to that as well if the U.S. doesn't agree to this, then you're going to have digital service taxes come back. Um, and then, but then I guess the U.S. response, depending on who you talk to, though, objections to digital service taxes, to my understanding, is very bipartisan in the United States. It's not like it's only, uh, you know, Republicans who are, you know, get very angry about this. It seems fairly uh, bipartisan. So you could have they'll say, well, we just put trade sanctions and it doesn't necessarily mean um, that, that the U.S. would would uh, agree to pillar one. But 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 we'll see. It's all it's st still somewhat speculative, I would say. My LinkedIn feeds very full of people um, predicting doom for pillar one. Oh, yeah, I, th I think that's the, the consensus at this point uh, to, to be very blunt. Um, yeah. Uh, but if that collapses, are, are there any consequences for Pillar 2, given that they're supposed to go together, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a really great question, because Pillar 2 is, it's already law in the European Union. Uh, it's on the path to becoming law in Switzerland. 
through the referendum they had a, on a constitutional amendment a couple of weeks ago. Um, by one estimate, I think this came from the OECD, uh, it will cover something like 90% of multinationals or, or companies in the next two years. have to um, double check that, I think. But, but I mean, it's... It's already, and, and and that statistic, I think we have to be careful too. Like, there it's a, there's a lawmaking process um, in some jurisdictions. The what the jurisdiction I'm the most familiar with is is the EU, and there, I mean, the directive was passed. As as I think Graham, you alluded yeah. to a little bit uh, earlier, big fight with Hungary and Poland and the recovery funds and all these other sort of unrelated issues, but it took nearly a year, but finally last December was agreed. So this means member states have to implement it into national law by the end of this year. And, and if they don't, then the commission can launch infringement proceedings and say, you know, you're not following EU law correctly. So, I mean, it would seem to me that, that pillar two is a fact, at least in the EU. Um, I know Where's UK? Um, that is an excellent question, Graham, um, and I don't know the answer You're to it. You're still in the middle of the consultation it. process, I think. Uh, yes, I believe Good. so. I don't know if it's. I don't even know. If, I don't know if that's closed and we've moved on to the next bit. There, that's all. We've I not. We've certainly not any further than that. I think you're predicted to introduce it next year, or or the end of this year. Uh, I'd be surprised if we had it by the end of this year, but you know, I'm yeah, but then, yeah, the, the, ele the, elector the electoral calendar is going to ruin everything in the UK. Um, but I, I, so, so I think what you're saying, Todd, is that um, pillar two is real, even though it's linked to pillar one. Um, yeah, I mean, pill pillar two is real, at least in in Europe, um, or the Europe in the European Union, and uh. And yeah, I mean, how and in and in other major jurisdictions too. I can't remember them exactly, but I think in other major jurisdictions that are not the United States, it's you know real or on the path to becoming real. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely the case during the Pillar Two, uh, you know, deliberation process in Europe that there were some countries that said, well, you know, we prefer pillar one to pillar two, but if they have to go together, we'll accept pillar two. Or they were saying like, we, you know, we're hesitant about pillar two because we don't see pillar one advancing. And and yeah. Um, there were some African countries that had some big issues with pillar two, weren't they? That were persuaded like Kenya and I think Uganda as well. They didn't, they didn't sign up originally. They were persuaded to join. I think if it starts to creak, they might break off again. And I think, well, and I also think too, there were one or two, um, Kenya comes to mind. I I, I think there were- Kenya refused some, to sign originally. They And I think it was also had to do, at least initially had to do with their digital tax, but I'm, I'm that's a little bit outside of my, yeah, of I my seem, area. I seem but... to think they had a DST that was actually in force. Yeah, and they and they didn't want to to um to 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 get rid of it. Um, yeah, I mean there is a broader issue uh, that I mean I, I I I'm not I'm not the best person to discuss really, but I know there is a broader question 
about the appropriateness of the two pillar package for what are sort of broadly, very broadly called developing countries. I mean, it's that, that, that's a probably way too broad a term, but you know, how does it impact their tax incentives? Does it does it stop tax competition? I mean, I think that's sort of the, the pro argument that says, well, if we if they all agree, then it stops the so-called race to the bottom, stops the tax competition. On the other hand, you hear the argument, well, but the 15% is too low, so it should be higher. I mean, politically, I probably think the inclusive framework got sort of the level they could get. I mean, because you, you had a, a at least a nominal rate, right, in Ireland that was 12.5%. And I remember, you know, writing about this a couple of years ago, that it's something that Ireland was very attached to. So to get them to raise that to 15 is a is a very big deal. And so to think that you could conceivably have had a higher rate than that, I it might have been politically difficult. But of course, that does raise the question um, that I'm not really in a position to answer, but is that an appropriate deal for developing countries? But that's something that that each country has to has to answer on its own, I think. So, I, I, and again, this is an issue that, that arises and which there was quite a bit of uh, chatter about this on LinkedIn, maybe a couple of weeks back about there's, there's a, a school of thought which says that actually it, all these international tax measures should be being coordinated by the UN and not by the OECD, mm -hmm. which I think would result in a significantly pref significantly more balanced approach from the perspective of developing nations where their where you know where their input is maybe uh, has to be more more um has to be fought for more um in in the oecd environment um and so i yeah i mean and, but again this goes back to the point that i i make interminably no doubt that into you know having an international tax having a unified international tax approach is hard because all nations are different and the reasons their tax systems have developed in the way that they have reflect those differences and so to find something that works for everybody I'm not against I, I'm not against at all sort of international tax measures because with globalization I think they're inevitable but I think they need a lot a lot more thought and a lot more fairness than they're perhaps getting um, at the moment. Yeah, so I think the OECD are clinging on for dear life, aren't they, against the pressure for the U for the UN to take over? Um, uh, they are, yeah. And that's that probably comes from um, we've only ever had one international tax system. It was designed in 1927 by the rich countries, and um, it needs to be changed. And the rich countries have decided that they're the ones to do it. <laughs> and if you don't like it, well, you know. That's tough. I don't think I can't well, but, see the UN taking it over. I can't see the UN being um, organized enough to be able to take the initiative there. I, I, I mean, the the I, I I I mean, it's not for me to advocate for one organization or the other. Uh, and and I see yes, the argument of okay. Again, sort of in inverted commas, developing countries have a better representation in the UN, I mean, I, I've heard this argument. Uh, I, I mean, I, there is also though, I think 
an argument of, I mean, I think back to the inclusive framework discussions around the two pillars, right? And what was it, you know, 2019, 2020, 20, uh, 2021, and you had, you know, 140 countries around it or jurisdictions to be very precise around a table and they have to agree to something sort of by consensus. Well, I mean, the UN, I mean, just thinking about it, I mean, you're, you're making the, would be making the table much bigger, right? I mean, what, it's 190 countries or something. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, okay, we, we use it for other things too, sure. And and maybe, yes, that is more, inclu more inclusive and more democratic. But I mean, you can't help but wonder that whatever would be agreed would be even, even more kind of, I don't know, watered down or, or, or what? The, or the United States would still just say no. I mean, uh, so. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, I don't. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not advocating one side or the other. But ultimately, uh, whether it's done by the UN or by the OECD or by anybody else, when whatever we end up with is in place, there are going to be winners and losers, and I think to a large extent what we're seeing at the minute is the scuffle to by everybody to try to make sure that they aren't the losers. And unfortunately, an international, any sort of international tax system is going to be a huge compromise. And with compromises, that's where you come out. Some people do better from them than others, and some people actively lose out. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that we have to accept that that is what it is. Um, but then think about the consequences of that and, and whether or not we, we being the international community in inverted commas, are comfortable with the consequences of those compromises. And that's where I think maybe we don't do such a good job. We're all too busy squabbling, whether it be about should it be the OECD or the UN or this little bit here or that little bit there. Um, and really, we need to look at broad consequences and deal with it on that basis. And I'm not I'm not sure that gets done. Um, maybe it does. And I'm being desperately unfair, but I'm not sure that gets done. Well, there you go. That's that sorted then. <laughs> yeah, dead easy. Come on, we've guys. Decided we need to, we've decided that we need to take it a bit more seriously and stop squabbling. Well, <laughs> um, and anybody that's ever, 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 ever watched me and Harry be in a room discussing the work that we've got on, we'll realise that's very hard with two people, let, let alone with 197. <laughs> um, okay, so we have a third strand um, to talk about, which is the Unshell Directive, which is a another EU provision, a radical thing that's going to solve, it's going to abolish tax avoidance, like every other um, anti-tax avoidance um theme that the that the this is it's actually atad three isn't it this is i think it's it's they don't like calling it that but some people do call it atad three that's right yeah so what the um what the provision is is that essentially um companies which are what the european union define as shell companies um which a large number of us in the outside world just call holding companies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is a definition of what a shell company is. Um, and that is that it, uh, it has to have, I can't find it in my sheet. It's oh, 5% of its income needs to come from um, passive income. So that's 
no interest royalties and dividends, amongst other things. And secondly, it is mainly involved in cross-border activities. And thirdly, its day-to-day -day management and decision-making has been outsourced to a third party. So, it, so this is the kind of company that sits inside a fiduciary or a trust and company service provider that holds assets, like say there are lots of in places like Malta and Gibraltar and Jersey and Guernsey and Isle of Man. Um, that Barack Obama got so agitated about when he was talking about Ugland House in Cayman. Um, that kind of thing, this is essentially designed at getting as close as possible to outlawing that, that they can do within the tax system, right? So how's that going then, Todd? Um, I think it's a struggle right now, honestly. Uh, I have, I, I've heard... You know, I've spoken to a number of people about this and and people who are you know familiar with 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 what's going on. I mean, just giving some background, it was introduced in uh, by the commission December of 2021 on I believe on the same day actually as the pillar two directive. but what day to bury bad news. <laughs> it was three days before Christmas, in fact. so it was a great Christmas gift for all of us us uh, tax fans or tax nerds, whatever you want to call it, uh, tax um, tax observers. But yeah, I mean, it's been, Unshell has been discussed in various, you know, committees of, of you know, member state officials. And I mean, from what I understand, there, there, there have been disputes, questions about even the sort of the you know the basic things about like what is a shell company what's economic substance what are the tax consequences we want to agree on these uh, for 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 these uh, um, for for the shell companies or you know how do these interact with tax treaties that already exist I mean it's it just seems enormously complex it seems which which is. I mean, I guess when you're a tax special, if you're a tax specialist, you understand how how this can become complex, and yet viewed from the point of view of the general public. And uh, Commissioner Gentiloni said something along these lines in the European Parliament a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of like, you know, how do we explain to the general public that we're that 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 we can't make progress on a law that. Um, is trying to crack down on shell companies. Uh, so I think it's going to be interesting uh, and perhaps revealing in the next few months under the Spanish presidency, uh, right? Because as you probably know, you have the, the six-month rotating presidencies in the EU. Spain says that they want to reach agreement in the, uh, members, in the Council of Member States in November on this. And yet, I mean, they they also admit it's a difficult file. Uh, so, I what I'm what I'm curious to see is one, can they reach agreement? What would this agreement look like? Because it may it, it it may be a little bit different from what was initially proposed. And thirdly, uh, if there is no agreement, um, which I which is a possibility. Uh, I, I'll delicately say I'm not ruling out. Um, if there is no agreement, then I wonder if Spain would still have a public discussion about this in the ECOFIN, a little bit like 
uh, France did with Pillar 2, it would be about a year ago, where sort of they forced the countries that were opposing it to say publicly what they don't like. And I mean, I think that would be interesting to see, at least for the more skeptical member states to explain um, kind of bluntly, I mean, what is it about this project against shell companies you don't like? Of course, you can explain, can explain well, you know, what you say is a shell company, I say is a legitimate business and et cetera. But for me, that would be a very, as a journalist, that would be a very interesting debate to see in public. Um, so I don't know I if think, it will happen, but it could. I think, I think this, well, Luxembourg's position was, will be, you'll destroy my economy. Yeah, and no. they're one of the, to my knowledge, at least, Luxembourg is one of the few countries that's publicly has said, we don't like this. They, they, they said very early on that we don't like this. So we know Luxembourg is against. Uh, I've heard, I know that I, I, I think there are, I mean, there are, there are other countries that are against, but I'm not. 100% sure of them. It's going to be the usual up. suspects. I mean, without any knowledge whatsoever, I, I bet you tenor, it's Malta, Ireland, Luxembourg, and Hungary. I mean, that's possible. It's certainly I see possible. Bulgaria a lot more instruction than I used to. They're, 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 they're doing something down there that I don't fully um, don't fully fully get. But um, I think the um, it's going to be very difficult for some of the member states to do to, for that. That's really... Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I, I mean, before we get to to that aspect of it, I think that there are two things that are really noteworthy about this. Um, the first one is that the proposal, the shape and sort of size of it has already changed to a, some degree, presumably for um because they weren't able to get agreement. So we've had some slight shift on, for example, percentages. So 65% passive income rather than 75 to come through that first gateway. The cross-border activity is now more than 55% as opposed to previously 65%. So you are you are seeing that more and more. And the second thing that I think is worth noting is the... Um, is going to be the, uh, the the punishments in inverted commas. So if you if it turns out that you are an entity that is a shell, you aren't going to be able to benefit from double tax treaties or the EU directives. Um, and so whether or not this is the intention, what this is ultimately going to result in absent any relief mechanism, which is not provided for at the moment, is double or possibly multiple taxation. Um, and that's in addition to actual acknowledged penalties. So you sort of, you get this, this disapplication of helpful provisions like double tax treaties and EU directives, but then you also on top of that get penalties. And these are tax, um, these are tax driven penalties. They're only, I think at the moment proposed to be between two and 4%. But actually, this could have a really significant impact for an awful lot of companies. And the next thing to say is that one of the things that we've seen in anti-avoidance within the UK for many years now is that it's sort of you started out with a tax system and then you got some 
anti-avoidance grafted onto it in various different places. And now what you sort of have is a pockmarked hole with these giant towers of anti-avoidance that have been built over time. So you tend to find you have provisions that discourage the same thing or do the same thing. And often they've been introduced in very quick succession without giving any opportunity to see whether or not they will, in fact, the, the previous layer, in inverted commas, work. And actually, to a certain extent, what Unshell is aimed at is covered by a lot of other things, not limited, well, not limited to, and in fact, maybe the least of a lot of information exchange stuff. Well, mm. BFIT, BFIT will fix this problem, right? Because everybody will have the same... <laughs> Uh, or, or beef it will fix this because there won't be any tax arbitrage to be had. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, it, it, no it, I think really it, it would be odd in any other area of law to see changes being layered on top of each other, one after the other so quickly, without seeing the, the full impact of what you've got and without sort of saying, well, we've put in place X, X does, our, our um, aims for X were one, two, three, four, and five. We've achieved one, three, four. It hasn't achieved five. So let's pop something on top of that to achieve five. Then, yes, that works. But in order to see that you've got one through four, but not five, you have to wait a few years. And I can understand why that may not be politically expedient. But from the perspective of having a workable system, one might think it had something to recommend it. Yeah. Do we think that that's, in a sense, driven by the institutional structure of the EU in this six-monthly presidency type thing? Like, I want to achieve something in my six months, um, so we'll do something, and this is something. Let's do that. Um, or do we think it's because they've got a diverse number of working groups, each solving individual um, problems that are actually one bigger, bigger piece? Uh, my view, for what it's worth, is that they those things both play a part, along with numerous other factors. Um, but Todd, I don't know about you. I mean, I think I think there's an element. There's certainly an element. I think that the 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 bigger countries, though, I mean, even this is not always true. But in my experience, the on the tax files, like the bigger countries seem to be a little bit more ambitious like you had France was you know really trying to get or you know or, or they were at least talking a lot about pillar two I mean ultimately they did not get it uh, completed under their presidency but they they seem to be trying a lot um the I don't know Czech and the Swedish presidencies in between, not sure how ambitious they were, though, to be fair to the Czechs, it was under their presidency that they got Pillar 2 completed. So, that, I mean, that has to be noted. Um, the Swedish presidency was 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 uh, refreshingly um, uh, open uh, about this. I remember even asking about this at a press conference. And they said, you know, tax issues aren't really a priority for us. I mean, they uh, so... But Spain, I mean, you had their their uh, center left prime minister speaking uh, last month, and and you know very very strong language against uh, you know at least a perceived corporate tax avoidance. Um, 
So, and, and, and you see Unshell in their, uh, you know, on their agenda for, for later this year. So, I mean, but I think it, it's also a factor, yes, of the, the lower level officials, the, the civil servants working in the background, you know, at least having the meetings and saying, okay, this maybe you know it may be ready or or it's closer to being ready so you know get the political will together to push it or you can get the political will together to sort of push it over the line so to speak yeah i think i think spain's electoral cycle is going to be very interesting this year it, it will be no i think i think it will be there is a, a, there pe is a government's going to be very different to Pesoy. Yes, you could say that again. Yes. Um, 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 I mean, there is this school of thought in Brussels that, well, you know, the presidency is very technocratic and, and, and everything is sort of set up already. And but I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens if, uh, you know, let's say there's a right that 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 you know, there is, you know, some form of change of government in, in Spain, and I, I don't know enough about their system to, to wouldn't feel comfortable speculating very much. But I mean, if, if, if just the, the you know, the, the, the prime minister changes um, to, and, and the party you know, of the prime minister changes, will that impact how the presidency goes forward? on tax issues. I, I don't know, but it's definitely something I'm, and I'm sure many others will be watching because the thing is, if they, if, if these measures stall, you know, in Spain can't advance them, then we may be hitting kind of a wall or at least a sort of soft wall in the sense that we start preparing in 2024 for the European parliament election. Then after that is the 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 composition of the parliament a new commission and in the second half of 2024 i think hungary will be the eu presidency which is raising a lot of alarm bells in brussels uh, some even are calling to have the their presidency revoked I, i'm not sure from what i've read that's very very that's quite difficult but it's but i think there could be a lot of tension among the EU institutions then. And I mean, tax files, as we know, are very difficult because of the unanimity procedure. And I think can require a lot of political will and a lot of time to move them forward. And if, if people are preoccupied with even domestic political negotiations with um, the European elections, or I think in the case of, you know, Belgium has the presidency in the first half of 2024, and they may have their own elections too, or, you know, institutional conflicts. Um, these things could, could kind of fall through the cracks a little bit. I, I don't it, know. It sort of feels like, and I'm completely on the outside and don't know anything about it, other than I, I have a very busy LinkedIn feed and I look at the news reports, especially from Law360. Um, Thank you. I um, that it's almost like we're starting to get into a period of reform fatigue. You do hear this. You do hear people say this. Oh yes. God! Another thing that we have to do. Yeah, have some stability, which is what I think you were reaching for, Harry. Before, wasn't it? You were, you know, let's see, let's 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 let the cards fall down and see where they land. And 
Yeah, you. It, yeah, I mean, you, you you don't know what works and what doesn't if you just keep changing things uh, all the time, and all you do is end up with a lot of legislation, a lot of which doesn't get used. Is my impression. Right. Okay. So, on that note, shall we move to the last? Because I've decided we're not going to talk about the withholding tax thing because I think that's boring. So let's talk about safe. <laughs> let's talk quickly about safe and um, which. What what does it stand for? Something awful for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Securing the activity framework of enablers. Okay, well, that sounds like it's a barrel of laughs. Um, Can I just say that it's absolutely the worst title for anything that I have ever heard. Even the title is boring. Like, Todd, without any any criticism of your delivery, I had nearly fallen asleep by the third word of that. You know, I can't. I I can't blame you. Um, yeah, I it's I didn't write it. I didn't. It wasn't my idea. Uh, so, so I, I, yeah. Todd, do you want to explain to us what the... I mean, I'm explaining... The enablers Act is. Yeah, it's basically... Okay, to be... Again, to um, we're talking a little bit in the fog, I guess is a phrase, because the proposal has not actually been published yet, but we know a certain outline of the general idea of it, and it's basically to, to try to stop... Um, I don't like this term enablers. I think it's very, it's kind of, I don't know, it's suggesting, it's almost like saying someone's guilty before any any presentation of evidence. But yeah. you're trying to stop um, tax advisors. Uh, I think it's specified, I've heard, I've heard it said that those outside of the EU sort of selling or promoting tax avoidance schemes to people inside of the EU that would erode the tax base of or tax revenue from people within the uh, with, with of EU countries, excuse me. And but I mean, but again, this hasn't been presented yet. It was supposed to be presented, I think, not that long ago. They took it off the calendar, and recently, the tax commissioner Gentiloni said basically that as long as unshell is in limbo they're not going to present safe right uh, sister it's a sister provision to unshell by the sounds of it then it, if you're going to turn off these structures inside the eu you don't want them just moving to payment or yeah i think that it, 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 there is some discussion about the two being there there had been some discussion some speculation that the two were were linked at least somewhat, and Commissioner Gentiloni more more or less confirmed that, at least in a from a sort of political point of view of of like let's let's not sort of clog up the pipeline or something. That as long as Unshell isn't going anywhere, we're not going to just drop safe on the on the so on the table. So, so I think I oh, sorry sorry Graham. I was just going to say, I think safe and unshell are similar in the sense that they are both satellites to uh, sort of uh, ATAD and indeed DAX-6. So mm -hmm. they they do sort of, you know, so one could say that they're, they're, they're similar in that sense. Uh, and in, the in economic any substance rules they've, they've imposed on 
low tax jurisdictions as well around the world, they mirror Unshell a bit in that they demand economic substance of things. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, what does the what does the actual safe provision say in any way? I mean, do we do we know? Will it be a criminal penalty? Will it be a fine? Will it be naming and shaming? Will it be extra? You will have to report what I mean. Uh, so th there are three three possible options at the moment, as I understand it. Um, we have got uh, requiring enablers to conduct due diligence on whether a scheme will lead to tax evasion and aggressive tax planning and maintain proper records of such procedures. Also prohibit them from assisting in schemes that would facilitate evasion and aggressive planning. Option two, uh, which is essentially option one plus, Enablers that do provide tax advice and services are required to register in an EU member state, and only those registered can provide those services in the EU. Uh, Non-compliant enablers are removed from the register. Um, and option three and would that require would amount all to enablers. a criminal offence, right? That would be some of the countries would Poland probably they're really big on fine. Um, so I mean, uh, Graham, when you say criminal offence, are we talking from? I mean. From a human rights perspective, from an EU law perspective, um, but more than just, <laughs> so, more than just like a, an administrative. Uh, it, well, let, let, let's go through it because I think the third option is actually really interesting as well, um, which is that enablers have a code of conduct which obliges them to ensure to ensure that they do not facilitate tax evasion or aggressive tax planning. And why I say that one's really interesting is because a few years back in the UK, the professional bodies, so CIOT, STEP, um, introduced new code of conduct rules into their in, in existing conduct rules around um, effectively enabling tax avoidance. So that it became um, what what could be advised on where assistance could be given became much more limited because I know the bar, the tax bar, had an awful lot of difficulties dealing with this because we're subject to the cab rank rule. So say you had a, a barrister, tax barrister, who was a STEP member or a CIOT member as well. So was, um, they couldn't, put, they would have to have, they would have had to have got rid of one membership because they couldn't both guarantee that they would act in accordance with the cab rank rule and um, be able to, that they, if they were asked to advise on very aggressive tax avoidance, they would have to do it basically. Yeah. And so we, we, we did manage to resolve that issue, but that which seems almost the lightest touch approach actually does have some issues because one, one of the, the reason it was such an issue for the cab rank rule is because I think the cab rank rule is important in ensuring things like Article 6 human rights, so right to a fair trial, for example. Um, and so actually saying, saying you can't get legal advice as in option one, that is to me really a pretty big deal. And it's like it's hugely ambitious, right? I think that's one very polite way of putting it, to, to regulate the tax advice market for the entire world. Um, like I, I know they do it with um, DAX Seven, don't they? The platforms. If you have a customer in the EU, you need to register and 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 report. So, if, sorry, if somebody uses your digital platform, 
um, like eBay to sell things, you need to report if, if they're in the EU. Sort of. Think... And you have the, and, and sorry, Graham, you have the, the, the blacklist or the sort of the list of uh, non-cooperative non jurisdictions that the council has too. Um, I mean, so there is, I think, a precedent of the EU kind of using its influence to try to impact tax behaviors you know, I, uh, I see that, but I, I think I think what I'm driving at is the ambition of it, because there are so many players in this market, and if I'm sitting in New York, giving tax advice to somebody in France, why do I care if I'm a one man band or a two man band that never goes to Europe? Why do I care? Can they? How will they be able to reach out from inside the EU and apply sanctions to people? So, so, well, this, this this sort of reaches back into what is giving rise to a lot of interesting issues at the moment around information exchange, uh, which is the problems. So legislation, domestic legislation, generally speaking, sort of stops at the water's edge. And there's a very good practical reason for that, which is that take take a crime, you can't, you know, without treaties and everything in place your policeman can't run over the border into the next country to collar their criminal um for example and it's very much the same with tax measures how do you enforce it against somebody who isn't and never will be in your jurisdiction and the answer is absent international cooperation legally it is it is very difficult if not impossible to enforce such measures one way that the eu have, and indeed one way that is used by uh, jurisdictions around the world is uh, political pressure. So we see that with the, the EU lists, but you also saw it. There was a case that I, bat I, I, I bash on about all the time in Jersey, where um, Jersey was threatened with being put on a blacklist of a specific country. And so the law was actually changed in relation to appeals against a certain thing, um, just, just because of this political pressure. So in terms of legally, how can it be enforced? That really has to be through an international framework that's agreed, and that might be very difficult to get over the line. But in terms of the political measures, though, we can see that those have been very effective in, in a number of um, examples. And, and Graham, one point also to, to the one thing to your point, too. I mean, I think I've heard it discussed that in the example you're talking about of the advisor in New York advising a client in France that actually, um, I'm not quite sure how this would work, but that the, the authority could go after the client, actually. They would, that the, 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 the client taking the, the, uh, the advice from the non-registered person could get a sanction or get in, in, in trouble. I'll just leave it sort of vague. Yeah, like no, no, I, I, see, I see how that could work. That, because that's getting to somebody within inside the EU, that's within reach of the EU, um, and it would that would close it because nobody would want to take um, advice and that 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 that, that risks them receiving a penalty. But I just think that it's it feels wrong that they are trying to effectively, I mean, practically outlaw people being told about things which are not illegal. That just yeah. feels wrong. 
part of the the challenge with safe too is defining what is this aggressive tax planning or something like and 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 also and and i don't i mean i don't know what the answer to this is going to be i'm not sure anybody really does necessarily they're, the they're most likely i reckon i reckon they'll follow the dac6 reporting i think that's a safe bet that's a convenient framework that's lying around that everybody can agree on mm -hmm. And everybody has already admitted that's everything on that list is aggressive tax planning. Uh, well, I, th I think that they, they are going to have to extend beyond that. Otherwise, what's the point, really? But yeah, let's see. Yeah. I think it's it's a very powerful tool they're trying to take to themselves. I don't know whether um, I th maybe I think that's that, that that's that's overreach beyond what is. What is acceptable for me? I, I struggle with the with the blacklist. I, the the thing I struggle with the blacklist is not that there are defensive measures in there, like they turn off the um, certain of the tax benefits. You don't get um, you, you you might suffer withholding tax. You might suffer whatever. I get that they're actual measures to protect the tax base, but I'm very um, exercised by the fact that they turn off some aid. So if you're a third world country and your transfer pricing rules aren't properly in place because you have a highly unsophisticated tax authority that can't deal with them um then the eu will turn off some some aid to you i think botswana's the one that that's on the list that i think how is that what is is botswana a big tax haven i mean why is that there it, it can't be right I don't I mean I'm not I'm not sure it's quite that simple in practice but I do know that yeah that in theory I, I think it can work like that but it's that's stepping yeah. beyond defense though isn't it and becoming yeah. becoming aggression no it's it's a fair it's a fair criticism it, it is it is I I don't I don't know all the details there but it, it's a it's a reasonable question definitely yeah yeah I think that I think they'll update that again in October. So, you know, we can talk yeah. again about that then. I'll see what see what's going on there. <laughs> well, that leads us to a question. Um, Todd, I mean, it's been fantastic to have you here. Thank you. Don't you think, Harry? I mean, it's excellent to get some news updates. Um, Todd, it has been amazing. Thank you so much. We, we love having guests because Graham and I actually secretly hate each other. So having somebody else to referee the arguments really makes all the difference. And you have not only been a fantastic referee, but also an excellent guest and I have learned a lot and hopefully um and, and, and learned a lot and been entertained and so hopefully our listeners will be too and we'd love to invite you back when so absolutely yes definitely Thank come you. back keep talking to us um everybody should subscribe to law 360 obviously yeah 100 um, percent. it is the it is the premier um legal news service um that has Todd Buell as a writer <laughs> Um, <laughs> thank you very much for coming and uh, we'll see you all soon bye bye, bye. thank you